Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. The ACA is the peak body representing chiropractors in Australia. Hosted by ACA President, Dr. Anthony Coxon, these podcasts explore the science, art, philosophy, and politics of chiropractic, as well as reviewing the latest research and discussing how chiropractors can strive for excellence in practice. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. I'm your podcast host, Anthony Coxon. I expect most of you will be aware of the patient education programs that currently exist for people with severe and chronic pain. These usually take place in rehabilitation centres and are often overseen by a chronic pain specialist. Typically, these education programs cover topics such as reframing unhelpful beliefs about pain, the biopsychosocial aspects of pain, and self-management strategies such as remaining active and pacing. Now, trials have indicated that this approach can achieve clinically meaningful effects on pain and disability for people with chronic pain. But what about acute pain? Is there merit in introducing these patients to education programs in the early stages before they have a chance to progress to that chronic phase? Well, most international guidelines for acute low back pain do recommend that practitioners provide advice, education and reassurance. And I'm sure many of the practitioners out there do exactly that. But is a more intensive education program warranted? Well, until now, we've had not much to go on apart from clinical experience and an educated guess. But my podcast guest today, Dr. Adrian Traeger, has looked at this issue very closely. He's recently published The Effect of Intensive Patient Education versus Placebo Patient Education on Outcomes in Patients with Acute Low Back Pain, which you can find in JAMA Neurology. To give you a bit of background on Adrian, he's a physiotherapist and NHMRC Early Career Fellow with a special interest in evidence-based patient communication. He's worked in primary care for 10 years before completing a PhD in medicine from the University of New South Wales. Adrian has published 36 scientific papers relating to low back pain and patient communication in leading journals such as BMJ, JAMA, Internal Medicine, CMAJ and Plus Medicine. Adrian's research focus is on investigating strategies to reduce overdiagnosis of low back pain, and he currently teaches at the Sydney Medical School. Hi, Adrian, and welcome to the ACA podcast. G'day, Anthony. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure uh, to be talking to you today, and thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule. Um, many chiropractors and other um, practitioners will be very aware of you and your uh, what you've been doing in uh, the world of research, but perhaps you could give uh, our listeners a bit of a background of your professional journey and how you came to be where you are. Uh, yeah, sure. So um, my, my background up until about five years ago was pure clinical practice, so um, I worked at a family practice for 10 years uh, as, a, as a physiotherapist, so I, I worked mainly in musculoskeletal conditions um, and, yeah, I was really interested in, in the, the different components of, of that work. A lot of it was patient education-based and there was manual therapy involved and um, I guess I, uh, uh, throughout that experience, developed my own kind of questions about, you know, what were the effects of what I was saying to people and um, you know, that sort of led me to uh, do a PhD at Neuroscience Research Australia. Um, 
And that was with uh, two fairly well-known researchers in the pain field, uh, Professor Lorimer Mosley um, and Associate Professor James McCauley. So they, they were my PhD supervisors and they obviously uh, had done a lot of research in in pain education. Um, and I kind of, yeah, I went down that, that, that path and, and, and this project, which was published recently in JAMA Neurology, that was really uh, part of my PhD work. And um, yeah, I guess now, now I'm a full-time researcher and, and um, yeah, I suppose I, I miss the, the clinical work a little bit, but now my, my focus is really on, you know, how do I improve people's health through uh, getting really high-quality research out to the public and uh, so it's a little bit more of a distant way of trying to improve people's health. Well, I guess you can influence um, the the health of a of a country, a community, and the world uh, even more so if you're if you're assisting hundreds of, chi- of chiropractors and physiotherapists to do a to a better job rather than just doing the job all by yourself. That's right, and that's that's really the appeal, and I I, I love that that aspect of my job and. Um, my research group now is uh, at the Institute for Musculoskeletal Health, so I work uh, with other physios. I work with um, chiros, with pharmacists. Um, so it's a really uh, multidisciplinary research group, and um, we're all trying to tackle this this issue of low back pain and, and from different ways, and, and you know, make our practices as good as it can possibly be. So I alluded to during my introduction about the um, the chronic pain education programs that currently exist in Australia. Uh, tell me who is typically involved with these. Um, I'm assuming they're Medicare funded. I've certainly had patients who have gone through the programs and um, some have seemed to have done very, very well. In fact, probably most, I'd say, have got some benefit at least out of, out of it. Uh, others less so. T- tell me about how it works and uh, and who runs these programs. Yeah, so the traditional kind of uh, pain education is just one component of a multidisciplinary rehabilitation program, um, and, and these are usually led by um, specialist pain clinics that are nested within a tertiary hospital, so a large teaching hospital. Um, there aren't very many of them, um, so they often have a very long waiting list, um, but their services are amazing. They're very intensive, so they're um, you know, often over a period of months, people can go every day um, and receive education and other kind of uh, strategies to um, treat their chronic pain. Um, and the pain education um, is really just one component of that. So you can get access to it, but it really is for those people who are um, really struggling with very chronic pain. They'd need a referral um, yeah, from from their primary care practitioner, their chiro, their GP or their physio, and then they'd need to go on a fairly long waiting list. So there's one um, well-known one that's run out of um, Royal North Shore Hospital that's led by Michael Nicholas, um, and he was one of the investigators on this trial. So he's very experienced in the chronic pain model, and uh, we worked closely with him to, de- to develop and adapt this intervention based on his experience with people with chronic pain. We had to... Um, sort of trying to adapt things to, to suit um, this different population with people with acute pain. So there's rehabilitation programs that don't require a, a GP referral. You can be a physiotherapist, a chiropractor, and refer to them. Is that correct? Um, uh, you, you don't quote me on that because that could have been changed. I'm actually not 100% sure. But this, back when I was a clinician, it, it did have to go through a, uh, a GP, So and then, and then you'd have to get... 
uh, waitlisted and then you'd be, um, yeah, from my understanding, a lot of the, the funding is, is from insurance schemes more than uh, Medicare. Uh, but yeah, the, yeah, the funding is a little bit complicated. Sorry, I'm not the, the, the expert on that. But um, the, I guess the, the bottom line is they are tricky to, to access um, because they're costly programs yes. um, and not, not every patient has access to them. So if we can get this kind of treatment into primary care, uh, something that a physio or a chiro could deliver, I guess that was where we were going with this yes. and, and bringing things in a little bit earlier. So how can we get this kind of treatment to put more people earlier and firstly is it effective well getting now more onto um rather than questions without notice so sorry about that and uh, getting more now to your study you you obviously identified a gap in the research because most of the research um about these intensive education programs has been um, geared towards chronic pain. Um, you recognise that not much has been out there as far as acute low back pain and how these programs might work for these people. Yeah, not at all. So this this particular approach had never been tested in people with acute low back pain. That is pain education that's focused on teaching people about um, the brain's involvement in pain and different uh, strategies such as uh, pacing and and those sorts of things for um, self care and rehabilitation. So um, obviously there'd been a fair bit of work um, done on education. So traditional education for acute low back pain um, that's been based on uh, the biomechanical model of of back pain. So lifting techniques and these sorts of things. These have been tested in randomized trials before, um, teaching people about the anatomy of the spine, how to sit better, how to lift better. And what we found from those trials is that isn't particularly effective for improving outcome. Um, we have had data from, from trials showing that simple advice to stay active can improve outcome, but compared to advice to rest in bed, um, but yeah, this is this is um, really building on that approach t- to give advice to stay active. So uh, one of the problems we saw when we looked at these trials of advice and education is if you're going to tell someone to stay active and they think their back is damaged, there's a bit of a, a missing link there. So uh, we thought, okay, we know that simple advice seems to help acute back pain, but a big proportion of people still go on to develop chronic pain. Um, so what if we were to boost that education, really build on that advice that we know helps? Um, and, and if, if we can do that, will that prevent this fairly large proportion of people? So it's about, um, 30% of all people who present to primary care with acute back pain, develop chronic pain. What do we do for those 30%? Because that simple advice isn't enough to prevent chronic pain. Can we add something and will, will that help them? So, Adrian, how did you go about enlisting people for the trial and what were your inclusion criteria? Yeah, so for this study, we relied on um, treating physiotherapists and GPs who had just seen someone with acute low back pain to refer to the study. Uh, so these people went through the usual care they would get from their, their treating practitioner um, and then they were offered the addition of this new treatment for back pain. So they would provide us with the details and we'd contact them to include them. And to be included, they had to have acute back pain, so less than six weeks pain duration. Um, and they also needed to be at high risk of developing chronic pain. So that 30% I was talking about before, we can actually identify them. So 
these are people who are um, at a higher risk than the general population of developing chronic pain. So we specifically targeted that group um, and if they were above average risk, then we included them into the study because one of the problems with trials of acute low back pain is such a big proportion recover irrespective of what you do. Um, so there's no point trying to develop a new treatment to prevent chronic pain when 70% of the sample will get better and will not develop chronic pain um, regardless of what you what you say to them. Um, so we really tried to get um, a sample that were um, more likely to develop chronic pain. That's actually something I was really interested in. You talked about in your study about the use of the pickup tool to, to work out the risk of acute low back pain developing into chronic uh, low back pain. Can you talk a little bit about that instrument? Yeah, sure. So the pickup tool is a validated um, tool that was developed um, out of our research group um, in Sydney. So it's based on patients um, in Australia, specifically in Sydney, um, who presented to their GP or physio with acute back pain. And um, using a very large sample, over a 1,000 patients, we were able to find the characteristics of the patients that predicted whether they would develop chronic pain. So that's pain for more than three months. Um, and so that came down to five factors. Um, and they, they were firstly pain intensity, so those with more pain were more likely to develop chronic pain, those who had pain radiating to the leg, also those who had a compensable injury, so they were receiving um, workers' compensation, um, those who had, and we, I should say that we don't know that that's a causal link and we don't know exactly what, why people who receive compensation are more likely to develop chronic pain. That's not to say they're malingerers, it's just an association that we don't fully understand. Um, and then the two last factors are feelings of depression, so if you're feeling a bit down, and also the self-perceived risks. The fifth factor is the perceived risk that you're going to go on and have a persistent problem. So if a person feels within themselves that this is going to go really badly for me, they're more likely to develop chronic pain. And, and so those five factors put together in an algorithm can tell us um, what's this person in front of me, what is their likelihood that they're going to get chronic pain, um, and we use that as a screener for um, entry into the study, and we only included those who had um, a higher-than-average risk. I noticed that it, I think it was 2016 you published um, a paper on the pickup tool. So what we'll do for our listeners is as well as uh, having a link to this current study that we're talking about, I'll make sure that we include the link to that pickup tool because I think that's really in interesting and important information for practitioners, uh, chiropractors and others to be aware of. Um, again, just getting back to that uh, biopsychosocial uh, approach to, to low back pain and to health in general that is, that is so important. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that. And yeah. I think it, it is uh, it's it's an interesting aspect that's very relevant to primary care practitioners, such as chiropractors, to have these tools that are evidence based. And it's another piece of information that you can give your your patient. Um, and we're still trying to investigate what's the what's the best way of using it. But we know that it's valid and it can give reasonable estimates of you know what's going to happen for that person in front of you. So you've gone through your inclusion criteria. You've got your, I think it was 202, was it, that um, were in initially included in the study? That's right, yep. So we had um, 202 included in the study and they were randomised into two groups, um, so 101 in each group. 
And the intervention group received, in addition to their usual care with their GP or physio, they received an additional two hours of pain education with a specially trained physiotherapist. Um, and it wouldn't need this. This intervention could be provided by any allied health professional that was trained adequately. Um, the idea was that it was a um, something that you would need to refer from primary care to, but it, it could be. In, embedded in models of primary care. So two, two one-hour sessions of pain education, that was what the intervention group received. And the control group um, received placebo pain education. So that was interesting. That was the same amount of time with the same practitioner, but no information or advice was given whatsoever in those two hours. I almost find, and I know you described in your study as active listening, but to sit down with, with a patient for two-hour sessions and not actually give them any advice about their problem but just to ask, I'm assuming they're saying, how are you going and tell us about what's in your life but and it's, but I would find it frustrating myself and quite difficult to actually sit there and not actually say something back to them. It was really tough, you know, it's coming from one of the practitioners that was working on the study. I, I, I gave um, many of the sessions um, the, both the placebo and the intervention sessions, and it was really tough. It was, it was painful, you know, <laughs> because you're trying to jump, jump out and give them advice. I think that's a natural thing for a, a health practitioner to want to do to to just um, tell someone or give someone advice that you think is going to help them. But um, yeah, so it, it was tough, but we wanted to have a really solid placebo um, intervention so that. We use that term placebo because it had all the aspects of the intervention minus the education component. Yes. Um, so the intervention looked um, almost indistinguishable. Uh, it, it just involved more talking from the practitioner and, and that advice component. So we were able to really separate out what is the effect of that advice we're giving, that intensive education about and, and I should say that that education involved explaining, you know, what are the nociceptive sources of back pain, where, where can some of those nerve signals be generated from in the spine, from the disc, from the facet joints, and then moving into the spinal cord and up to the brain. And once we got to the brain, we would explain that, you know, this is where all these biopsychosocial components come together and that determines how much pain you feel. So it's really trying to take this neuroscience explanation of pain um, and give that to patients, which we know has helped in, in chronic pain. So it was a, quite a detailed explanation. So I guess it's important to remember here that we're not talking about those conversations you'll have with patients day-to-day -day in practice where you might discuss the biopsychosocial aspects that are relevant to their individual presentation. What we're talking about is this intensive education program, usually done over two hours and really going into a great deal of depth about their understanding of pain and the role that it plays in their well-being and of course what they can do to control and manage that. That's pretty much what you were talking about with your study, is that right Adrian? Yeah, that's right. It, it looked quite different to what to what an average consultation would involve with with you know a simple biopsychosocial explanation. It was very detailed. Um, there were stories and metaphors and things to keep keep it interesting. And in general, patients or the participants seemed to enjoy it um, and were engaged with it. But um, 
you know, the same could be said for the placebo group. A lot of people enjoyed having the opportunity to talk about their problem um, and have a practitioner just listen rather than talk for the whole time. Yes. All right. So uh, what were the results? Yeah, so surprisingly, we found uh, that there was no effect of that additional education compared to a placebo. Um, you know, we really felt like this was, if we could um, reduce someone's perception that their back was damaged and we could improve their beliefs about the problem. Um, and our separate analysis showed that this happened. So we were able to, you know, get people to be a bit more positive about the problem. They catastrophized less, so their, their outlook was better. Um, even then, there was no effect on pain at three months of, of that additional education. So you used two monitors to measure outcomes. One was the um, 0 to 10 point pain scale and the other one being the 24 point Roland Morris disability scale. From what I recall, there was no change in the pain perception and only a minor improvement in disability at one week and three months. That's right, yeah. So small, short-term improvement in disability, um, which is consistent with other trials that have tried to add something to usual care of acute low back pain. So you get this very small improvement in small effect on disability, but it didn't reach clinical significance. So we would still call this um, an ineffective treatment. Um, and that's important to know. You know, this is, this is an approach that's gaining popularity um, among physios um, and people who treat back pain. Um, and that's sort of based on, you know, a, a couple of smallish trials in, in chronic pain. So I think, um, you know, this, this really shows us the value of doing high-quality trials to find out whether um, treatments that are becoming a little bit trendy um, and, and popular uh, are really having the effect that we, th we think. Because, we, you know, we went into this trial thinking this really was going to be the answer to chronic pain, that it, would, it really would have that effect on pain. But, um, you know, we were, and we were surprised that it didn't. It just shows the value of, of testing these things before, um, you know, they spread like wildfire into the clinic. I think this really is a good example here where the outcome you get from your study is not what you've expected. I mean, it would make logical sense, wouldn't it, that if you were having these discussions with people who have acute low back pain, then surely that's going to have a good outcome on their likelihood of progressing to a chronic state. You know, often people with low back pain have poor body awareness, poor posture, poor um, manual handling habits and all these sorts of things. And you only think, well, gee, if we could address this early on, surely that would be helpful. But uh, according to the study, apparently not. That's, that's, yeah, I completely agree with you. That's the toughest thing, you know, <laughs> about this trial because it does go against our gut feelings. But I guess that's, that's one of the beauties of science because it, it does, you know, uh, give us a chance to really take all those biases out from from you know what we really think is the case to to what might be close to the truth based on science. So um, as challenging as these results were, I think um, they're really important, and I hope people take note of them. And I think you know for me, for for someone coming into this thinking that education was the most important aspect of what we do as primary care practitioners. 
know, it's made me question what is the role of education? You know, what else do I need to be doing with this patient apart from educating them um, that's going to improve their outcome? That's, that's the next question. So um, there's still 30% of people with acute low back pain who come to see us are going to get chronic back pain, and we haven't solved it yet. So what can we do now? How do we build on this knowledge that, okay, education, even when it's the best quality, most detailed um, that we can provide, when that doesn't work, what else can we do for these people? What what, what are the other options? Um, so I guess that's where, you know, that's where we're going with this now. You know, we're still trying to develop new treatments that will prevent chronic pain. We're looking at different avenues, but I think... You know, the, the reliance on education and, and the belief that education is, um, is the most critical aspect of our care, I think we need to think carefully about that and think about what we're giving in addition to education um, and that, you know, perhaps what we're saying is not as, as effective as, as we first thought. We need to, we need to do more. So Adrian, in studies like this, you use outcome measures. In your case, you use the... 11-point pain scale on the Roland Morris scale, um, and that's important, of course, because we need to measure the outcome in order to come to any uh, conclusion. But practitioners need to measure outcomes with their patients as well. Would you say the 11-point scale and the Roland Morris are suitable for uh, practitioners to use every day in practice? Yeah, well, I think that the pain scale is, is probably, you know, the, the easier one to use routinely in clinical practice, and it's also, you know, the most commonly used in, in pain research so that, you know, we do so much research based on that scale and, and um, it's probably the best we have um, for, for measuring pain at the moment. Um, the role of Morris is a bit longer, so I'm not sure many clinicians would spend too much time or getting patients to fill that out um, regularly. Um, there are obviously other scales that focus on specific um, things in the clinic that, that are, are relevant and important to the patient, like the patient-specific functional scale, and um, they're a little bit shorter and easier to implement in the clinic and remeasure after you've done your interventions. But certainly the pain scale, that, that is something that um, practitioners should be asking and um, you know, evaluating the effects of their, their treatment as best they can based on that. Well, Adrian, thank you so much for your time on the ACA podcast today. It's been really terrific. A great little study that you've put together and very useful, I think, for practitioners to really understand well, really what works and what doesn't work when it comes to uh, low back pain. It really is a conundrum and the more we can be informed about um, best practice in this area, then the better off we are as practitioners and certainly uh, our patients hopefully will be well into the future. Oh, that's my pleasure, Anthony. Thanks very much for your interest and yeah, thanks everyone for listening. Well, that's it for me. Thanks for listening to our ACA podcast. I hope you found it to be helpful in your quest for excellence and I look forward to chatting with you again on our next ACA podcast. <music> <laughs>